Coming up this hour, we're going to hit a whole bunch of headlines rapid fire, and then for the rest of the hour, we'll be joined by pastor and author Isa Macaulay. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey everyone, welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. It is a bit sunshinier today than last we chatted, and I, for one, am grateful. Uh, Another thing I'm grateful for, Brian, we have a Facebook page. Did you know that? I'm aware. Yes, with a lot of traffic today. A lot of traffic on it today. A lot of traffic. We're not lying. If you want to head on over to the Facebook, uh, the Facebook, the Common Good Radio Show is where you go on the Facebook. So you can find all the articles we post. You can shoot us a message if you want. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Common Good Talk, 1160hope.com slash the common good. And wherever it is, you get your podcasts. I'm really, really excited about the rest of this hour. Esau Macaulay is someone that we've been reading from and quoting a a good deal the last few months. And so he's going to join us for three segments coming up. But something I did a little earlier this week and last week, I think, is just to grab a, a couple of pretty compelling headlines that I didn't really know that we had much commentary other than the headline or the general gist. So I think I got four or five of them here. And uh, Brian Fromm, I'm going to let you just go first and pick which one you want to do. Oh, let's start at the Business Insider, where it says Barack Obama and others' Twitter accounts were hacked in cryptocurrency scam last night. Uh-huh. And I'll bring that up because uh, then they shut down Twitter last night for everybody with a blue check mark. Then mm-hmm. it was a weird deal. Like if you went on Twitter last night, anybody with a blue check mark who are basically people, you know, celebrities, politicians, whatever, authors, writers, um, and they just shut it down. And so it was all people without uh, blue check marks going, hey, I really like Twitter more now. <laughs> but but yeah, Twitter got hacked last night. So I saw it was uh, Barack Obama, Joe Biden, Bill Gates, and a bunch of others in which somebody was using their, their somebody had hacked into their pages or their accounts and was trying to pull a scam with uh, Bitcoin. So uh, you don't always trust everything, uh, you know, uh, social media wise. Sometimes, you know, you got to be a little careful. But it was interesting. You're not used to these big people uh, getting hacked like that. So when people were getting alerts from Joe Biden's account trying to sell Bitcoin, uh, it kind of raised some red flags. That's a real hot take there, Brian. Don't always believe everything online, I think is what you said. <laughs> It's a true statement, though. That's the (laughs) understatement of the century. (laughs) Hot take right right out of the shoot today. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So uh, I'll go a little more lighthearted, but I guess still kind of serious. This headline out of Wired says llamas. Yes, llamas could help us fight COVID-19. These creatures have evolved special nanobodies that may have an edge over human antibodies when it comes to developing a new treatment. I've seen probably a dozen or so articles about this. Have you read anything up on this? No, notion? I haven't seen this at all until you posted it. Oh, really? No, not at all. So some people might take issue, especially if you're a, a young earther. It starts off by saying millions of years ago, some unknown common ancestor of today's llamas, camels, and alpacas underwent an unusual genetic mutation. This evolutionary happenstance gave llamas and their kin a strange type of antibody that no other mammals have, which surprisingly could end up aiding in the fight against COVID-19. On Monday in the journal, Natural uh, Structural and Molecular Biology, researchers from the Rosalind Franklin Institute and the University of Oxford reported the discovery of two llama antibodies, also called nanobodies, which I'd never heard of, that could prevent the virus that causes COVID-19 from infecting human cells. So 
when I first saw it, I was like, this is some weird meme troll thing. And then I actually right. did a little bit of research. So I was like, oh, these are these are big institutions. This is a this is a very real possibility. So either way, that's posted on the Facebook page. You can read the whole thing. But I, I thought that was <laughs> super interesting. The hope, our hope, it comes down to the llamas. It, feels, it sounds like a bad movie, <laughs> or a, or a great movie, or a valid point, depending on who is playing the star, other than the llama. Sure. Uh, let's do this next one. Uh, we took it out of the New York Post. Navajo Nation suggests a new name for the Washington Football Team. So uh, we talked about this earlier in the week. Uh, the Washington Football Team, formerly known as the Redskins, is changing their name under much pressure. Even after their owner, Daniel Snyder, said he would never, ever consider changing the name, they started getting real pressure from some real money, Nike, FedEx, and others, and they are now changing the name. Uh, As an aside, I don't know if you saw this, their Washington Post has been kind of hinting at a huge story coming out today about the Redskins that might it might they were they're commenting that it might have the owner it might cause the owner to have to sell the team it's that scandalous so oh, nobody really? knows nobody knows what it is uh but it's supposed to drop uh today tomorrow if they can nail it all down but anyway it actually has nothing to do with the name change it has to do with their culture um but anyway the navajo nation is suggesting that the washington football team take on the name code talkers uh as kind of to pay homage uh, to the famous Indian code uh, talkers that um, kind of a, a flip, right? They've used what has been viewed as as a Native American uh, racial slur all these years. So now do something to honor the Native Americans. Uh, I believe that the Redskins have at least hinted, or the Washington football team, I'm sorry, has hinted that they're not going to use anything kind of Native American related uh it's a great idea. I can't imagine a football team being called the Code Talkers. That doesn't that doesn't uh, roll off the tongue, uh, the Washington Code Talkers. But as an idea, I do think it's really good to say, hey, we kind of went this direction with the Native Americans. What if we used a Native American name that kind of uh, celebrates something from Native American history? So I like the idea, although if I'm honest, for a football team, I don't really like the name. I mean, I don't know that it's the oddest football team name I've I've ever heard. I did also see as a quick aside, there's another guy who's apparently buying up all the uh all the domain and trademarks that. of like related possibilities to like force the team to have to buy one of them from him, which is smart guy. Yep. Sort, sort of the same version of like the guy that bought up all the hand sanitizer at the beginning of all this pandemic, right? <laughs> kind of the same. I mean, nah, I guess not quite the same. Uh, all right, we got two more I want to tackle, and we don't have a whole lot of time. This one just sort of has me scratching my head. It's out of CBS News. 87 people charged with felonies after Breonna Taylor protest at Attorney General's house. It was a peaceful protest. It says 87 people were arrested and charged with a felony after a Tuesday protest on the lawn of Kentucky Eternal Attorney General Daniel Cameron, the Louisville Metro Police Department, said in a statement. The protesters were demanding that charges be filed against the officers responsible for the March shooting death of Breonna Taylor. The protest began Tuesday evening near Ballard High School in Louisville, Kentucky. And it kind of goes on. I mean, again, I, 80s, the picture at the top is is pretty wild. And it is something that has a lot of people on the internet really yep. confused slash angry. It was a peaceful protest, but it was on someone's property. Again, I'm not versed enough to know like what are right. the various protections, but the arrests to me seems odd it seems strange and i know that brianna taylor's name is one that people have worked really really hard to kind of continue to maintain 
uh, traction and, you know, to be in the public eye. We only have about a minute left. Why don't, why don't you get to this last one briefly? Yeah. Uh, I just thought that this Facebook post that you posted was hilarious. So I wanted to end with this mayor Lightfoot saying, uh, the other day, I'm not the mother who threatens to take the keys. I will pull the car over, shut the car off, kick you out and make you walk home. That's who I am. Mayor Lightfoot talking about that, how she will not be, uh, hesitant or scared to kind of put some restrictions back on if Chicago doesn't do well. Governor Pritzker has said much the same. So use that as an encouragement, people, to keep wearing your mask, keep being vigilant, because uh, some numbers are going the wrong way nationwide. So we as Illinois need to do well. But Mayor Lightfoot saying, I'm ready to pull this car over, kick you out and make you walk home. (laughs) Right, right. Well, coming up next, and I mentioned that I'm really excited about this, Esau McCauley, who is both a pastor and a speaker and a writer and the author of a new book that's coming out in September, Reading While Black. He's going to stay with us for the rest of the hour here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. You can find us a bunch of places on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good, and wherever it is you get your podcast. Wouldn't mind subscribing, rating, reviewing, all that stuff does actually help us out. But I got to tell you, I am absolutely thrilled to have Dr. Esau McCauley on the show right now and for the rest of the hour. Welcome to the show, sir. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Let me just give a brief introduction. Dr. Esau McCauley is not only a professor at Wheaton College, he is a Anglican pastor and the author of a brand new book, Reading While Black, African-American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope. Just, you've written so much and we're grateful for you, man. We've we've referenced so many of your articles over the last couple of months. Uh, and I'm just curious, as you've been writing, but also just processing all that's been going on in our country for the last couple of months, just... Uh, where's your mind at? How do you? How would you say the church is doing? And uh, are you are you encouraged or discouraged by what's going on out there right now? Um, well, my encouragement or discouragement is I, I try not to keep it rooted in human beings. Um, my mm. hope is ultimately in the resurrected Jesus, and since Christ is risen, I'm never without hope. So that's at least when I'm doing when I'm in my best place spiritually. I'm not looking at what individuals are doing and saying, because because these individuals are doing well, then I feel better because that's just too fickle. Human beings will disappoint you. Now, do I think that the church is making progress? Um, I hope so. I think that um, I always, I always like to say that I don't think that like American pedagogy, especially American church pedagogy has to be purchased through black blood. So on one level, I feel like, and and this is not to be, yeah, should it take all of this to get people to listen to us? And so Mm. I think that I am encouraged because I believe that God is faithful and that he never has abandoned his people. And I'm encouraged by the fact that um, more people are starting to recognize the scope of the problem and participate in bringing about change from a decidedly Christian perspective. Hmm. So you actually, you use the word hope in the subtitle of your book. The book's called Reading While Black, African-American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope. Tell us a little bit more about your hope for that book specifically, because I know that writing a book is a really involved process, and you probably have a thousand different ways you can answer that question. 
What what are you really kind of hoping to accomplish with that work? Well, actually, um, I wrote the book. It's it, it's it's amazing how much how little has changed in the last three years since I wrote the book. So when mm-hmm. I when I one of the motivations, I have a lot of motivations when someone sits down to write. One of the motivations was I saw some of the African American move, movements for justice in America, and I remember seeing an interview or something where someone said, "This is not your parents' civil rights movement." And at least the way I took that particular conversation was the kind of Christian principles and ideas that that shaped some of the moves and practices of the civil rights movement were being um, that's what was, that was what we were going to do. And it and it was that was a part of a larger conversation that I saw within the black community. It was asking a particular question, and the particular question was: Is Christianity a friend or foe of black Christ, of, of black people? in the cause of justice or just in, in black flourishing more generally. And what I wanted to say in the book was historically African-Americans have turned to the process of Bible reading and Bible interpretation as a source of hope. So the reading in the Bible and seeing in the Bible, a God who loved them, a God who cared about them and a God who wanted their freedom and a God who's, who stood on behalf of the poor, a God who cared about injustice. They're like when African people saw this, discovered this God in the Bible, it was the means by which they engaged society. And so what I wanted to show people was not just saying, let's go back to the past and bring back the past, but to say that we can still return to these texts and find in these texts a depiction of a God who's a friend and not an enemy. So that was part of what mm-hmm. I wanted to do in the book. And, and I, 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 I like to use the analogy of the edited slave Bible. And I think that they said something like, when you think about when Jefferson and these other people during the um, American Revolution, when they when they created, well, I don't know if Jefferson created, but when they created the um, slave Bible, Jefferson created a different edited Bible. When they created the Bible for the slaves, they one of the Bibles had at least sixty percent of the the passages taken out of it. So we think of when you think right. of it editing a slave passage, you might think there's a verse here, a verse there. They took sixty percent of the Bible away because they wow. thought that in sixty percent of the passages. There was encouragement that would lead the slaves to no longer accept their condition. And that's because they knew mm-hmm. the Bible was dangerous. And what happens when the slaves mm-hmm. got the Bible, right? When the slaves actually got the, got a hold to the Bible, it was impossible to convince them of what they, they of what they knew to be true almost instinctively. That that it was impossible to convince them that God wanted them to remain in the condition that they were in. And so the Bible has always been dangerous for the oppression for the oppressor when the oppressed got it. And what I want to do is mm. hand the Bible back as a dangerous book and not hand the Bible back as if they don't have it, but like present the Bible again as a dangerous book in the hands of people who believe in the God depicted in those texts as it relates to mm. um, their freedom and liberation. Mm. You know, you saw uh, Ian specifically has been asking a lot of our guests uh, this question that we've gotten from a lot of people like, hey, we should just be preaching the gospel, not talking about social justice and other things. How would you answer that question when people are like, hey, let's just preach the gospel? I mean, I would ask them if they would ask if they would say that to Isaiah or Jesus himself. I mean, one of the mm-hmm. things about the question is when we say just preach the Bible, if we just preach the Bible, for, we're not going to we're not going to use the We're not going to get caught up in the gospel language. Let's talk about the Bible in Isaiah. Read the first five chapters of Isaiah. You'll see Isaiah doing the following things. Isaiah talks about um, personal immorality. He says, what do you who get up early in the morning to drink wine and, and chase, you know, immorality all day? 
In that same book, Isaiah would say, woe to you who abandoned the covenant of your God and chased after idols. He will also say, woe to you who join house to house so there's no room left in the land. Woe to you who take bribes and, and oppress the innocent. So in Isaiah, in Isaiah, just that one book, you have personal morality, fidelity to the one God of Israel, a critique of Israel's social practices as it relates to the oppression of the poor. So if I'm preaching Isaiah and I preach from Isaiah a passage about the faithfulness of the one God, great job preaching the gospel, Esau. If I preach about from Isaiah and I talk about personal morality, it's great job, Esau. If I go to Isaiah and I preach about what Isaiah says about the exploitation of the poor by people in political power or by court systems, I'm now no longer preaching the Bible. So all I want to do is say we have to preach the whole counsel of God. James in the New yeah. Testament says he criticizes rich landowners who are not paying fair wages to their workers. And if I were to stand up in a congregation and say, here, based upon James, how do we apply this to our business practices in America? I would be seen as not preaching the gospel. And so there's a difference between saying, here's the ways in which people need to be saved. That's part of Christianity, right? You never need to put that right. to the side. But every pastor that I know also disciples people through preaching. That's right. And you train people on how to live in the idea right. that the Bible doesn't speak to how we live interpersonally as it relates to issues of injustice. Right. The Bible talks about what, what I'm saying is when you preach about marriage, you're not people don't say just preach the gospel. When you preach about how to right. parent, people don't say just preach the gospel. It is only when mm -hmm. something and if you stood up and preached a pro-life message, people will not say mm -hmm. just preach the gospel. What just right. preach the gospel is code for. Here's something I politically disagree with, and I would call it not gospel <laughs> yeah. as a way to silence people. Oof, that'll preach. I'm so glad you're sticking around for two more segments <laughs> because I have so many more questions to follow that. But uh, if you're just joining us, by the way, go back and listen to the rest of this interview on the podcast because I have no doubt it's going to be wonderful. That other voice is Dr. Esau McCauley. He's a PhD, an author, and a pastor, and he's going to be sticking around for two more segments here on The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us a bunch of places on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. That's where we post our articles. You can send us messages. You can also get the podcast wherever it is you get podcasts. Plus, we're on Instagram and Twitter, at Common Good Talk. And we have, for the rest of the hour, Dr. Esau McCauley, who's not only a pastor, but an author and a writer and a thinker and someone who has been honestly really helpful for us, even in the forming of this show the last couple of months. He has got a new book coming out called Reading While Black, African-American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope. And you wrote a piece for the New York Times a little while ago, and the headline simply reads this, What the Bible Has to Say About Black Anger. Tell us a little bit more about that article. Yeah, um, so... I had I wanted to take some time off from writing about black people dying. If I, forgive me if, if I if I get the timeline incorrect, but um, mm -hmm. I had written an article about Ahmed Arbery, and then um, mm -hmm. Breonna Taylor. Not these things didn't happen like chronologically, but the time like as far as I became aware of them, I then became aware of the Breonna Taylor story, and I was like, I'm just tired of um, of lamenting black death. And then the George Ooh. Floyd incident followed strongly after that. And I was in a real place of like anger. And I just started writing a, a article and I actually wrote what became the first two paragraphs of it based largely upon 
a, a chapter on black anger that's in my in my um, book on it. And it was so dark, to be honest, I had to just stop writing it because there was like no hope. It was almost wow. like Psalm 88, where it ends with darkness is my only companion. Because mm-hmm. in that portion, I talk about how um, like the, the video depiction of black suffering is not new. You can look at the um, the, the the pictures of African-Americans being lynched where people are posed next to, to, to black corpses. You can look at, at, at the hoses and the dogs that were turned on black people um, during the civil rights movement. And I compared that sense of anger that I had to Psalm 137. Psalm 137 is one of the darkest Psalms in the Bible. And it, it occurs in the context of um, Israel being invaded by the Babylonians. The Babylonians came in, burned their city to the ground, massacred tons of people mm-hmm. and took them off to exile. And Psalm 137 depicts the aftermath. And Psalm 137 mm-hmm. has, I think one of the darkest like verses in the Bible, which is blessed be the one who takes your, your little ones and dashes them against the stones. And I mm-hmm. said, well, what kind of, like, what kind of, what could lead someone to say that? That I'm going to take the head of a baby. Blessed is the person who takes the head of a baby and dashes it against the rocks. And I began to think to myself after doing some research on it too, that's because it is highly likely that that is what happened to the psalmist. That when when the Babylonians came in, they committed tremendous atrocities. That's what happens when cities are sacked. And so what the psalmist mm-hmm. was actually saying is, I hope that what happened to 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 us happens to you. And I'm saying I'm not, and I don't believe that like what that actually means is that God wanted us to go and smash the heads of, ba- of Babylonian babies, but I think it is a record in time of people's trauma. And when we pray to God, we have to be able to pray the entire truth. And anybody who's really, really in, in, experienced suffering, sometimes our prayers are like, "God, I'm just mad." And God can handle that prayer. The question isn't whether or not we can pray our anger to God. The question is, how does God respond back? And in the second half of the article, which is actually written, it's funny when you write something, it's actually written weeks later. Um, mm. I, I I talk about, and this the same thing actually happens in the, in the, in the chapter, and it's much more nuanced than I do it in the, in the article. It's only a, a certain amount of time. I say the miracle of the Bible is not that it includes Psalm 137. Anybody can talk about vengeance. The miracle of the Bible is that it includes Isaiah 49. That Isaiah 49 is one of these passages where Isaiah is able to envision what happens after Israel's been into exile. Like what come when they come back. And this is what this is this is the what the word that God gives to the prophet Isaiah. It is too light a thing for you to simply restore Israel. But I'll give you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So in a place where the natural inclination is just to have vengeance, the miracle of the Bible is the Bible presents something beyond vengeance, which is the reconciliation of the nations under the under the lordship of or kingship of God. And I talk about how as a black Christian, I have to at some point move from Psalm 137 to Isaiah 49. And the cross is the means by which I make that transition. But when I say that, and this is the other way this can be misunderstood, this doesn't mean that I cease to say that there should be justice and equality. What I'm talking about is what comes after justice, right? And I talk about there has to be justice so we can be reconciled. People talk about reconciliation. I say this all of the time. And and, and I don't I don't want to use a an inflammatory analogy, but I'll put it this way. If you want to reconcile with your wife or your spouse, the first thing they need to do, and, and they've cheated on you, the first thing they got to do is stop the affair, right? So before right, we can begin right. to talk about us getting back together, 
You need to stop the affair. Or if you have a gambling problem and you're gambling away all of the money, you know what you need to do before you can come back home? Stop gambling. So justice, the righting of wrongs, the changing of behavior is what allows reconciliation to take place. And so mm-hmm. reconciliation doesn't rule out justice. It's what keeps justice from just being vengeance. Mm-hmm. And so what mm-hmm. I wanted to say in that article was African-Americans have, there's a long tradition of Christians being upset by injustice and African-Americans are a part of that tradition. And there's also a tradition mm-hmm. of looking beyond simply that revenge to the transformation of structures, but that and the reconciliation between estranged parties, and all of that is part of the Christian ministry. Christian ministry. Oh, hmm. that's so good. Another article that we talked about of yours, and I found it just fascinating. It just says this: as racism tears a country apart, the message of Pentecost can help the church find its voice. Uh, I know this was written back at the beginning of June, but can you talk about that and talk about that article a little bit? Oh, it's so funny. This is like, sorry, nobody wants to hear the whole of that story. I cannot believe that you all actually found it. So what happened? What, can I tell you, I, I want to tell you about how that came to be. I was actually supposed to be preaching. I'm you. supposed to be preaching a sermon on Pentecost and I, it was a Zoom sermon. So the Zoom sermon, like in the middle of it, Zoom breaks down and it, and everything goes wrong. And I have to actually preach on Pentecost into a phone while, while it's being recorded to a church in North Carolina. And it was such a miserable experience that I got off the phone and just like posted the article on my personal website. And then I was still kind of annoyed. I said, but I never got to actually preach it. So I I said, I'm going to go live (laughs) on Facebook so I can just preach this message. So I said, if you want to listen, here's a free Pentecost sermon. So I preached a Pentecost (laughs) sermon. And then the people in Christianity today reached out to me and said, can we turn this into an article? And then it turns into an article and then it kind of runs all over the Internet. But what I was trying to get at, <laughs> what I was trying to get at is that the message of Pentecost at the heart of it, right, is this idea that, that, that God's spirit falls upon men and women. And what God's spirit does, it, it leads them out into the world to preach to the very peoples of the world. And the, in the mode of Pentecost, right, the spirit falling upon men and women, young and old, rich and poor, and going out mm-hmm. to preach the gospel. And the first thing that you hear is a variety of nations, not a variety of languages all here in the gospel. The point of it is the gospel is supposed to bring us together. What is it that can unite the divided peoples of the world when the when the philosophies and the governmental policies have failed? It is the gospel. And when I talk about this, it doesn't mean that like we just need to be Christians and all of our problems are going to go away. What it means is hmm. the church as the united people of God across difference have an opportunity to witness to a different way of being human. Wow. That's so good. And I'm so glad you're sticking around, by the way, for one more segment, because you're working on a new article that I want to ask you about, if that's okay. That is a whole other lane of interest for Brian and I, and something we talk a whole lot on the show here. But that third voice that you're hearing is Dr. Esau McCauley. He's the author of a new book coming out in September, Reading While Black, African-American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope. That's what's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. You can find us all over the World Wide Web. I'm not going to bore you with the details, just you can Google it, that's fine. But I'm thrilled 
to have on the show for a third segment, Dr. Esau McCauley, who's not only a pastor and an author, he's got a new book coming out called Reading While Black, African-American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope. You've also recently become a formal contributor to the New York Times, right? I don't know how the formal process goes. You've been you've been knighted or something. Yeah, they gave, they gave me a gold they gave me a gold star or get, like when you were in elementary school. <laughs> <laughs> so no, well, you um, were you were mentioning you were mentioning during the break that you're working on an article that's specifically about parenting, and I'm just fascinated by that. You mentioned that. It, you know, you never know if it's going to get published or not. But I'm wondering yeah. if you could tell us a little bit about that thing that you're working on. So, yeah, you may never see it or you may see it sometime next week. So uh, <laughs> I took, I t- it was really it was, it was about pandemic parenting and what it means to be a black parent. So I took my son mm-hmm. to a baseball game um, I mean a baseball practice, a baseball practice a few weeks ago. And it was a normal baseball practice. And but when I went to my wife dropped him off, I went to go pick him up or vice versa. But I remember when I went and saw them, they were all wearing masks. Mm-hmm. And it struck me like both how normal it was to have baseball during the summer and how abnormal it was to like have a mask on. And I remember, um, and it kind of, it kind of reminded me of kind of the, the summer of COVID-19 where parents are always involved in this difficult calculus what do we allow our kids to do? We're balancing like their safety with their need to be children. And so we're saying, right. okay, well then which families can come over, which, you know, what kind of activities can we go through? You know, the, the swimming pools are all closed for the summer. And there's this constant calculus. How much do I allow my kids to be free and how much do I put um, kind of hindrances on them? And I just know that, mm-hmm. for example, during the, the, I think we were closed somewhere around 45 days and Illinois felt like from middle of March all the way through the end of May. And I saw the toll mm-hmm. that it took on my kids emotionally and spiritually not to be able to see their friends. And so mm-hmm. I was thinking to myself, like, if they don't open it up soon, I got to find some way to keep my kids emotionally and spiritually healthy. But at the same time, this is a real pandemic that's really dangerous to people. And so I can't put my kids safety, you know, I can't just, so that, that struggle, but that struggle to me is similar to the struggle that African American parents have actually had for centuries. We're asking this question, Mm -hmm. how much do I allow my black child to simply just be a kid to run and play and exist versus preparing them and warning them about the dangers that comes with being black in America? So when I do I tell for example do I tell my 9-year-old daughter that 135,000 people have died from a, a virus? Can a should a 9-year-old have to hold that weight? On the same mm-hmm. sense and, th- and this is the, what I'm saying though. It's a similar question that we're asking as black parents. What how much about what happens to in America do the kids need to know and when? Do you know do I tell my son about Ahmed Arbery and then George Floyd? And then talk about right. the racial elements of it. So I'm always engaging in this, like, how do I prepare my kids for living in this country versus how much right. do I keep them safe? And, and is me and is me not telling them at some point parental neglect? So, like, to me, it right. was a young kid outside just playing with a gun, a toy gun, right? And he gets shot. Right. So do I like do I say you know what my nine year old or my ten year old or my twelve year old he should play with the gun because he's the kid, or do I say you know what son we're gonna play with that in the backyard? Mm. And so that can, yeah. so that calculus is something that I think that all black parents struggle with, and I think that in a small way 
all of America is being introduced to this reality. And the other thing that's really interesting about, especially COVID-19, is the danger is hidden, right? It's like our very physical bodies are the danger. So we don't know who has it. So we're all suspicious of one another. And so in the same way, when like when you're black in public spaces, like your physical body is perceived as a threat. Hmm. Like my son is 12 years old. I say this all the time. He's 12 years old. And that means he's like middle school. And, you know, some middle schoolers are closer to being elementary schoolers than they are to high schoolers. They're in that transition from like cute to like young boy, young man. Mm -hmm. And once you transition to young man and you're black in America, you interact with the world differently. He was cute two years ago. He won't be cute mm. when he's 14. He, he'll be a potential mm. danger. And how do I balance that discussion? Mm. And so yeah. pandemic parenting is in a limited sense, similar to black parenting more generally. And I talked about how me and my wife, what we've, what we've decided to do is to have a bias towards joy. And that mm. means like, I don't tell my kid, you know, every horrible thing that happens. And when I do, I let him know, like, he knows what happened. He know my children know about what's happened in America. But my focus isn't on black suffering. It's on black triumph in the face of suffering. Mm -hmm. And so learning how to find joy while being black in America is similar to the attempts to kind of find joy in the midst of a a complicated pandemic because as much as we love our children we can't protect them mm. we can't yeah i mean yeah. you can limit it but like it's not it's literally not safe and i know that like the reality of a chance of a kid dying from the um from the coronavirus is um is slim so that's not what i mean what i mean is like they're they are marked by this time of their lives yeah. Do you yeah. like we don't know the long term implications of shutting, isolating our kids for 45 days and then half allowing them out into the world and then have them knowing in the back of their mind that people are dying. You've been listening to Dr. Esau McCauley, author of the new book, Reading While Black, African-American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope. Esau, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. We appreciate it so much. We'd love to have you back, man. That sounds great. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. It's Ian Simpkins here. And I remember the first time that I actually learned about Thriving Financial. I was pastoring a church in Bartlett, and me and two other pastors had this dream, this idea to better care for the marriages in our communities. And so we started to dream up this conference idea. What if we actually hosted a local conference to pour into marriages and couples in our churches, in our neighborhoods, in our communities? And Thrive and Financial kind of came alongside and not only like made the conference possible, but they were actually interested in partnering with us as churches, as pastors, to help people not only be wise with money, but to live more generously, which was always a value that I had and always struggled to find organizations that actually wanted to help our churches do that. And so that's actually kind of the beginning of what's been a really beautiful journey and relationship with Thrive and to actually be wise with money, to live generously and to help other people do the same. And so if that interests you, I'd encourage you to go to Thrivent.com to learn more. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about Ellen DeGeneres and then a little bit about the difference between analog and digital church. You're listening to The Common Good.
everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good for part two. We are here for it, and we're so glad that you are here. Brian Fromm is also here. Don't you fret. You can find us a bunch of places if you want on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. Also, Instagram and Twitter, at Common Good Talk. And we mention it a lot, but if you missed the conversation that we just had with Dr. Ethan McCauley, you got to go back and listen to the podcast, go to the Facebook page, read the articles that we shared. This is a guy, and I, I mentioned it to him even, maybe he was even in between the breaks, but his uh, his writing and his voice has been so instrumental for us the last three months, and we're super grateful for him and for his wisdom and all that he uh, is contributing to the world. I, f- I found this to be fascinating. This is an article. I don't know how this is organized. So it's it's on Christianity Today, but it's the Jesus Creed blog, which is run by Scott McKnight, but then he has a guest writer, which is Kelly... <laughs> Edmonston. I, I was like, I clearly don't understand how how blogs or the internet actually work. But the headline read for this. <laughs> yeah, right. The headline reads, "What is saving your life? Pondering our emptiness and hope for fullness. For fullness. For fullness. Boy, oh boy. This is something. This is not typically how we start the top of the hour. Typically, right. it's like news and what's happening in the world. And I, I was just so moved by this. I thought it was so well written. So why don't you uh, get us into it a little bit, Brian? Yeah, let me just read it. It says, what's saving your life right now? Barbara Brown Taylor has made a practice of asking this question of people. This is what she says about it in her new book, in her book, Leaving Church. Uh, She said, salvation is so much more than many of its proponents would have us believe. In the Bible, human beings experience God's salvation when peace ends war, when food follows famine, when health supplants sickness and freedom trumps oppression. Salvation is a word for the divine spaciousness that comes to human beings in all the tight places where their lives are at risk, regardless of how they got there or whether they know God's name. Sometimes it comes as an extended human hand and sometimes as a bolt from the blue. But either way, it opens a door in what looked for all the world like a wall. This is the way of life and God alone knows how it works. I answer this question, the author says, what is saving your life right now in a sermon coming up by telling a story that is found in 2 Kings chapter 4. One day, a widow of a member of the group of prophets came to Elisha and cried out, my husband who served you is dead and you know how he feared the Lord. But now a creditor has come threatening to take my two sons as slaves. What can I do to help you? Elisha asked. Tell me, what do you have in the house? Nothing at all except a flask of olive oil, she replied. And Elisha said, Borrow as many empty jars as you can from your friends and neighbors. Then go into your house with your sons and shut the door behind you. Pour olive oil from the flask into the jar, setting each one aside and when it is filled. So she did as she was told. Her sons kept bringing jars. She filled one after another. Soon every container was filled to the brim. Bring me another jar, she said to one of her sons. There aren't any more, he told her. And then the olive oil stopped flowing. When she told the man of God what had happened, he said to her, now sell the olive oil and pay your debts and you and your sons can live on what is left over. Uh, The author says the story oscillates between the two extremes of empty and full. The widow is empty. She has nothing. She is the epitome of someone who has found themselves in a tight place. She is poor in debt and now faces the loss of her most treasured possessions, her children. She has an empty house. She even tells Elijah that she has nothing, but she says, except a jar of olive oil. Then at Elisha's curious instruction, she collects empty jars. She's empty, desperate, and in great need. Many of us are facing our own form of desperation today. Some of us are facing unemployment, sickness, the death of loved ones. Many of us feel desperate because we don't know how to answer questions such as, do we send our children to school or not? Do we continue to stay at home uh, to work or stay at home with them? 
We're not sure how to proceed in caring for aging and ill parents during a health pandemic. Mm. How do we make future decisions about anything? Many of us, like the widow, are desperate and empty at the end of our resources. There is good news for those of us who are desperate and empty. The miracle of the story is that the emptiness is miraculously transformed to fullness. The widow takes the meager amount of oil that she has and she pours it into the empty jars until they're full to the brim. She fills and fills and fills until there are no more jars. There is such an abundance that she uses the jars to pay off her debt and still has money left over. With this miracle, Elisha, God through him, saves her. The financial resources gained from the oil save her children from slavery, save her from poverty and despair, and ultimately save her from death. For those of us who are desperate, empty and alone, this story invites us to follow the example of the widow and to find salvation as Taylor defines it in the divine spaciousness that comes to us in all the tight places. The widow points us to the God who opens a door in what looks like a wall. God alone is the one who takes empty jars and fills them to overflowing. That's that's powerful. That will preach. That's a a really powerful article here at Christianity Today. Yeah, that's some good writing, man. And again, I don't really understand how these blogs are chosen or what the format necessarily is, but I feel like Brian, maybe you can relate. Feels like in this season as a pastor, there's like the the surface level concerns, you know, where people are they're asking about when will buildings be reopened, and then yeah. you kind of drill down a little bit, and you see some of the debates regarding masks and the best course of action, and then and then I think for the pastor that's like paying attention or really listening, there is this like deeper ache, isn't there? Like there's just this sense of yeah. of of emptiness, not just emptiness. Cause, cause plenty of people are, are financially fine and they're relationally. Okay. We've talked a lot on the show about like people though, who are stuck in like abusive relationships and now can't leave the home. You know, we've talked about unemployment, like those things are very, very real, but there's plenty of people that are like, none of that's affecting me, but I still feel this pain, like this grieving, this, like the world as we knew it is maybe totally gone. We don't know. Maybe it isn't, but there, you know what I mean? Like there's like this general emptiness that I feel like I'm hearing from a lot of people right yep. now. And I read this and I thought, I mean, I immediately sent it to like three or four people. I was like, this, oh, this literally. just, again, it doesn't diminish like the current pain or anguish or grief that people are feeling, but it, it just painted a picture for me in a way that I thought was, was faithful to the text, but also faithful to people's experiences. Yeah. Um, I just found it to be a really timely word. Yeah, it's a reminder that God still works miraculously and powerfully and is still present. I think you're you're really correct. I think people right now, people, and maybe I'm just sensing this in myself, but also in people around me that as summer starts, you're starting to look towards the fall, whether things like school or other things, right. I think there come these benchmarks where you're like, oh, we're not done with this yet. Oh, it's right. getting worse in some places. And like, there's that kind of exasper- exacerbation where in the beginning it felt like this was going to be a really quick deal. You know, we'll shut down for a couple of weeks or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then it's the summer, but summer is still kind of weird. You know, you're not normally in school anyway or whatever. And now it's like, wait, we might face this for longer and there might be a second wave at some point. And it, I think that heaviness, and this is a great reminder, uh, whether you're facing really acute things like health issues or job loss, or you're just facing that ache of like, ah, oh, I'm so discouraged. Uh, Turning even to an Old Testament story like Elisha and this widow uh, is is a real encouragement. And so I'm glad you sent this our way, this this idea 
that she says that uh, the divine spaciousness that comes to us in all the right places, that it's still a God who opens a door in what looks like a wall and that yeah. God can still bring to overflow, I think is something we all need to hear. Also, if you've not read any Barbara Brown Taylor, I highly recommend that you do so. She is wonderful. And I know, again, like I mentioned at the beginning, this isn't typically how we begin top of the hour type things. You know, it's usually more like, here's what's happening in the news and here's how we're reacting. But to me, it just felt appropriate for us to kind of take a step back for a second and maybe maybe ask some of these questions of ourselves. Like, where where have I maybe been feeling like I've been staring at a wall or, or where where maybe do I need to more more intentionally depend on God and whatever the kind of unknown space is, because like you said, and I think it's, I think it's important. We tend to feel this to a much lesser degree towards the end of summer anyway, sort of like that. Oh man. Well, there goes summer. Like you add a pandemic, you add food insecurity, job insecurity, school, mask, politics, an election coming up. There's, I don't know. There's just so much there. And I thought uh, that was like a good devotional word and super grateful for Kelly Edmiston and Scott McKnight and all the people over at Christianity Today for continuing to provide content like that, that I think is just really, really helpful. Coming up next, a topic that Brian and I have tackled a good deal is uh, sort of around this idea of cancel culture. But I want to talk specifically about some rumors around the Ellen DeGeneres show. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Oh, hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. It's been a minute, but Brian and I are still here, and we're glad that you're here as well. If you want to know some information about where you could find us, you are in luck because I'm about to tell you. So the Facebook page is The Common Good Radio Show. There's, as Brian mentioned earlier, a bunch of activity on a lot of those articles. We encourage that. Let's just be kind to one another. You can also send us a private message, though, if you have ideas for future shows or thoughts on past shows, any of that's fair game. You can also like and review that page. That all helps us out a whole ton. Plus, we're on Instagram and Twitter at Common Good Talk. And wherever it is, you get your podcasts. I'm really, I'm telling you, this is the honest to God truth. Uh, subscribing, rating, and reviewing helps us out a whole ton. And we're mm-hmm. super grateful for all of you who have done that already. I mentioned it a little bit earlier. So I want to talk about the Ellen DeGeneres show and some of the reasons why it turns out it might be canceled. But before we go there, Brian Fromm wants to give you some news. I do. I want to tell you about something going on here at the station with Dr. David Jeremiah and Turning Point Ministries. They're giving away hope all month long on AM 1160. For a limited time, visit 1160hope.com slash contest. And here's what you're going to receive. You're going to receive a bookmark entitled the He Is Bookmark, which is a wonderful reminder of the many names of Jesus. You will also automatically be registered to win a brand new David Jeremiah study Bible and a pair of Apple AirPods. So visit 1160hope.com slash contest today to register. Really well done, Brian. And that's Ooh. not just because I know you're a words of affirmation guy. Okay. You so, also know that I you also know that I struggle with the word AirPod yesterday. So I was like, <laughs> nope, I'm gonna get it. I'm gonna get was, it. <laughs> what was yesterday? iPad, iPod. iPad, iPod. I think I did them both. <laughs> Are people still buying iPods, do you think? Is that a thing? I don't think so. I don't Isn't think that so. wild to think that that was not that long ago that iPods were like revolutionary and now right. in most of our minds they're ancient. They don't even yep crossed our subconscious unless Brian Fromm is trying to say AirPods. Um, That's right. <laughs> so this, this website, littlethings.com, typically it was strange to see it on this site. I probably could have looked for another article, but it's typically like heartwarming, silver lining. It's kind of like the Good News Network. That tends to be kind of their lane. 
But I ran across this article by Karen Bells that says, rumor has it that the Ellen DeGeneres show might be canceled due to low ratings and abusive stories. And if you're not, if you've not followed this at all, it turns out that a lot of the abuse, as rumored at, at the very least, has come from Ellen herself. There's been a lot right. of celebrities who have come out to kind of articulate in no uncertain terms that she can be pretty mean or rude or dismissive, et cetera, et cetera. And it looks like it might be having real effects on the possibility of her show continuing. Why, why don't you get us into this article a little bit? Yeah, it says so many things have changed since today, since people have been advised to stay indoors. Uh, even some of the most beloved celebrities are having to reveal, have managed to reveal their dark sides. One of that is Ellen DeGeneres. Ellen was once seen as a lighthearted daytime hosting comedian, but many people's perceptions of her have radically changed this year. For one, there have been rumors that the host isn't as kind as she portrays herself on television. And it's not just on a bad day. She reportedly even treated her bodyguards with little respect. Uh, while many celebrities in her position have tried to make it, uh, sure their staff is taken care of during the shutdowns, Ellen has reportedly done the opposite. These days, she's filming at home. Her former staff is left in the dark about pay and another crew was brought in. And let's not forget that she compared her mansion to a jail when a majority of her fan base have it much worse. These stories, along with her changed format, might be why her ratings are falling. And it looks like the, the network is uh, taking notice. The news of the possible situation that was reported by The Sun, it stated the ratings of her show fell 14 uh, percent since Ellen's show has always been such a hit with viewers. This is a pretty big uh, hit, especially since more people are home now. Right. Yeah. And then it gives comparison that uh, uh, with live with Kelly and Ryan, Dr. Phil and how they've done comparatively speaking. So rumors start seeming more credible based on the numbers who've come forward to claim that the star isn't so kind that they're her st- her show uh, could be getting canceled. Uh, and so that hasn't come out yet. That is just rumor. Uh, but I'm wondering, uh, Ellen has always struck me. And again, these are just rumors. Uh, but we've uh, both from her show or her other show. I don't know if you ever watched Ellen's game of games. Uh, she's always seemed very lighthearted and cheery. So I've found this kind of surprising to read these over the last couple of weeks. I, I did too. And the reason that I find this story in particular, again, just rumors, but seems to be uh, growing evidence to some truthfulness. Uh-huh. What I find so interesting about this story in particular, and I, I recognize this isn't like hard-hitting breaking news, That's okay. but that there there isn't any real scandal in terms of like unfaithfulness or embezzlement or murder or drugs. It It seems to be the common thread for the last number of months is really circled around this idea of kindness, like that Ellen yeah. just simply isn't as kind as she depicts herself to be, which again, no one's as kind as they depict themselves to be either on social media or during a sermon or any of that. Like, I understand that there's a, a relative gap there always, but that all of these stories have come out again, not, nothing to the best of my knowledge, illegal, but just, yes, yeah, she's not really nice to people, not just guests, but also people close to her. And the very fact that that evidence or those stories mm-hmm. could potentially result in the cancellation of her show feels so fascinating to me. And I don't, I don't really know what the appropriate cultural commentary is, but we, you know, you're not, you and I have talked a lot about cancel culture and there's like extreme examples where it's, you know, in the cases of like Bill Cosby, for example, but in something like this, I'd love to know, Brian, like, do you think let's, let's just say 100% of the rumors are true. No illegal activity, but she she is just 
more consistently unkind than people realize. In your mind, is that reason A for a drop in viewership and or B, the cancellation of the show altogether? Uh, no, I think history probably uh, is full of celebrities who had shows that weren't nice people and were probably entitled. Um, but mm. I do think uh, if we have found this in churches, we have found this in TV and other places, uh, people will put up with you being a mean person, bad person uh, when the productivity is there. We can think of pastors who that was the case for. Uh, but the second things kind of change, you, your, your, uh, your, uh, your ropes a lot shorter, right? <laughs> uh, there's, there's a lot less grace there and that's just what happens. And so ultimately if her show gets canceled, it's going to be because of the bad ratings and the decrease in ratings. Uh, right. but my guess is, uh, that she's a difficult person allegedly to work for and with. Uh, makes it easier for the network to cancel once her ratings go down. And so I think, you know, kindness goes a long way. And it is just surprising. It's another reminder of you don't always believe uh, the TV persona that's out there for people. Because, man, uh, I think her charm has been over the years that she's lovable, friendly, everyone loves her. Uh, and it really seems like it was very different behind the scenes. And so, you know, it's uh, I, if it gets canceled, I think it's due to the ratings. But I don't think... Uh, it sounds like her staff and others um, will not be shedding a tear over that. Let's put it that way. Right. And that, that's what I find so interesting because it feels like the the capital of kindness is is reaching a, a new phase that I, I don't know that we've necessarily seen where you think 40, 50, 60 years ago. I don't know that anyone kept or lost their job because they were kind or unkind, to be honest. Right. I'm sure that happened in various professions, but like, you know, you and I have probably interacted with pastors who were less than kind when the mic was off. And that's not to sure. say that not all of us can, you know, fall victim to that to some degree, but like that there appears to be a, a pattern of unkindness in general that could have some real lasting, like monetary professional effects. Yep. That to me, I, I find to be interesting, especially as someone who like, if you watched your comedians in cars episode, it was very heartwarming and there was just so much yeah. there was so much to that story that I thought was was encouraging and like the little guy making it and all that. So it it, it is always fascinating to me when these celebrities come under fire and um, yep. I'll be I'll be curious to see exactly how how this story kind of progresses. That's right. Coming up next from a website that I've never visited before. The headline simply reads this. What would you do if you knew that one third of your friends would leave church? That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Oh, hi, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is still Ian Simpkins. His name is still Brian Fromm. And I can speak for both of us when I say we're glad that you are here. A couple of things real quickly to remind you of. I'm going to go in reverse now, Brian. You ready? There's a I, podcast. Yep. If you wouldn't mind subscribing, rating, and reviewing to the podcast, either on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast, that helps us out a whole ton. Plus, we're on Instagram and Twitter at Common Good Talk. And finally, the Facebook page, the Common Good Radio Show. We not only post all of our articles there, you can send us messages if you have ideas for future shows or thoughts on past shows, or you just want to give a digital thumbs up. That would mean a whole lot to us. Either way, we would love for that to be a space for us to curate and to learn what are some ways that we can make the show better or better serve you or topics or conversations that are on the minds and hearts of people. That really does help us out a whole ton. 
And uh, I've, I've n- I have no idea where I even found this website or I found the <laughs> link, to be honest. Physiology. Uh, I think I, you know, who I think shared it. I think it was Alan Hirsch. That's someone that we should get on the show. Alan Hirsch shared yeah. this, I think. And the headline simply reads, reads, what would you do if you knew that one third of your friends would leave church? We've had some comments here on the Facebook post that I'll get to in a second. But why don't you get us into the story a little bit? Yeah, and I, I'm guessing it was Alan Hirsch because at the bottom, they're promoting an event called the Church in Times of Crisis. And one of the four presenters is Alan Hirsch. So. Well, there you go. There you have it. So it says this, the July 8th, 2020 release of the Barna Group's latest study on the state of the church has confirmed what some have suspected would occur as the result of COVID-19. The study revealed that 32% of practicing Christians stopped attending church, whether in person or online, since the outbreak of the virus. While the National Public Opinion Survey of 1,000 U.S. adults uh, had a plus or minus 2.2% rate of error, when extrapolated to the general Christian population, there could be as many as 43 million people who decided to no longer attend church. Whether or not their minds will change once gathering restrictions are loosened, the study does corroborate a growing trend in the rapid decline of church attendance over the past uh, two decades. Just five years ago, for example, University of Northern California sociology professor Joshua Packard found that 65 million U.S. adults were, quote, done with church. Similar to the Barna study, done did not mean that they left the faith, although Packard indicated that nearly 30 million actually did. Done simply meant that U.S. adults no longer felt they need to attend church as it did not satisfy their expectations. If these two studies are correct, we have witnessed nearly 100 million people leaving the church in the past decade. Uh, So he goes on to say Christianity in general and evangelicalism specifically have been trending downward since the 1990s when nearly 90 percent of the U.S. adult population identified as Christian. Today, that number is 65 percent. While there have been some who argue that in spite of the decrease of general Christian population, population evangelicalism is growing this is only among certain segments black evangelical growth has remained stagnant over time while hispanic growth has increased yet not at the rate to sustain evangelicalism's overall decline white evangelicals in 2019 made up 15 percent of the u.s christian population whereas in 2010 uh, it was 21 percent and then it goes on to some of the issues uh, and asks this question what would you do if you knew that one third of your friends would leave church? And uh, that's kind of what they're going to use into their event that they're doing. But man, what a hard question. Well, right. you and I do these numbers a lot, but it does appear uh, with churches having had to move online and everything that has accelerated people, obviously disconnecting from church. And the real elephant in the room is, uh, are, are those people coming back? And, and there's, there's good reason to think they, uh, a good portion of them very well may not. Well, I want to spend a little bit of time, Brian, if it's okay, to share some of the comments we got. We posted this article a number of hours ago earlier today, and the comments are fascinating to me, which, by the way, I know we mention it every time, but your comments really do help us out. Like, It's a good yeah. list, litmus, litmus test, I think, of where some of us actually are at, and they don't all agree. So David Cook, who's been kind of our feature commenter this week, yes. um, he said, what others do or don't do should not influence my actions. What God commands and expects should be the driving force behind my decisions. Some of the third will never come back. Certainly, we need to reach out and encourage them to return, but some will still fall away. I suspect that Satan is using COVID to divide us and separate out the weak so they can further, so they can be further attacked and killed spiritually. For the most part, we seem to be sipping our tea and watching it happen without as much as a whimper. So that's... Those are some strong words uh, from David Cook. 
Uh, Joel says, uh, I am and will continue to grieve for who and what we have lost. But I also think this is a time in our history, like the Reformation, when we can use, uh, that we can use to rethink how we, quote, do church and find new, broader, and inclusive ways to live out our faith, loving God and loving our neighbor. The decline in the institutional and traditional church does not mean there needs to be a decline in, uh, in evangelism, discipleship, mission, fellowship, fellowship, etc. They just might need to look very different, which I think is interesting. I, I really found this fascinating, what Mel said. She said, I left the church for 10 plus years. Through my years as an atheist, I may have been away from the church, but God was always with me. I, of course, didn't know it then, but looking back now, I can see that as uh, a hard and uh, I can see that as hard as I tried to leave God, He never left me. The good news is that God is with all of us always. We can't escape Him. How did the church respond to me? They wrote me off. Maybe I stayed away quite a bit longer because of them. Be careful how you treat your friends who have mm-hmm. different beliefs than you, especially the ones who have walked away. And Vicky weighs in, and Jessica weighs in, and Tina weighs in. I don't, I don't know, I don't know if I have time to get to all of it, but I'd, I'd love to know what you think, at least of those first few comments there, Brian. I think they're especially Mel's there at the end of like, hey, yeah. I walked away from the church and uh, felt forgotten, and that's that's hard. That is that is a hard one, but. You know, we go over these stats a lot and, and it, like we said, it does remain to be seen what COVID-19 is going to do to the church. You know, you are reading those stats right now. You know, a third of the people uh, surveyed aren't watching any form, you know, aren't connecting right. with their church at all online or right. in person right. or other things like that. And, and uh, as pastors, I know you, we feel this, like, what are we supposed to do about that in this exact season? Uh, it becomes a, but it does become a chance. I forget whose comment said this. It does become a chance for us to uh, take some hard looks at the church, uh, the big yeah. C church and go, okay, uh, maybe this is a time uh, that we can try new things, that we can rethink things. Maybe this is the time uh, to have some of those conversations. And so maybe some good fruit will come out of the COVID-19 times, but there are certainly big hurdles right now uh, that are difficult for the church, for sure. I kind of want to end with this too. I don't know how much, yeah, we got a little bit of time, but Vicky said, having been the one who walked away from the church in my younger years, I can attest to the fact that I would not be where I am today in my spiritual journey if it were not for the prayers and love that my Christian family and friends showed me, which to me is always a really convicting truth. It's kind of, it's the sort of thing that you read and it seems obvious, but I think Mm -hmm. when it's, when it's happening to you specifically, it's so easy to move into well, you really should be, or, oh gosh, are you sure you want to read that or go there? And I feel like Christians now, maybe more than ever, need to be really, really mindful of the unique journey that each person is on and the grace with which those conversations require. Like people are challenging things and having to face realities and are experiencing all sorts of circumstances that none of us could have prepared for. For some of us, that will result in like in a, an ever deepening faith. But for others of us, in a very real way, it's going to result in an overwhelming tidal wave of doubt or at the the very least disenfranchisement. There's going to be a sort of like, oh, gosh, I don't know what any of this is. And I think it's not only an opportunity for the church to to be clear and bold about, you know, preaching the gospel and loving others. But Mm -hmm. not in a really specific sense, how do we love the people who right now are feeling I don't know, like a little, a little fuzzy on the whole thing. Like how do we actively help people 
not just sweep that stuff under the rug or once they stop attending, they're like, well, I got other people to focus on. So I guess I'll move on, like enter into the pain, but also the, the doubt and the confusion that the people in and around us, I I think are really, really dealing with. And I think that's going to be increasingly important in the weeks and months to come, which is actually not a bad segue to Carrie Newhoff's article. And I've mentioned it before, not every article that we read or share, Brian and I agree with 100%, but he, he wrote an article and the headline simply says, 12 things COVID has taught the analog church about the digital church. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, it's Ian Simpkins here. And after I had this experience with Thrivent where we were able to host this marriage conference with two other churches in the area, uh, my interest was kind of piqued with regards to what kind of organization this was. And it was really fascinating because they approached me, who was pastoring a church in Bartlett, and they said, we actually provide these free workshops for people that want to be wise with money and live generously. And so they sent me this link, and it was all these different topics, questions that people in my church actually were asking. And so it was remarkable. They hosted this workshop uh, a number of times in the coming months for people in our church to do just that, to to be wise with money and to live generously. And that's kind of how this relationship began because there was this no strings attached kind of mentality. It was just their heart to give back, to partner with pastors and churches to help people uh, live generously, to be wise with money and live generously. And that was kind of the continuation of my relationship with them. And so if you're interested in learning more, I can't encourage you enough to head to Thrivent.com today. Okay, friends, it's the home stretch. Stick with us. We got roughly nine-ish minutes left in the show today. And uh, before we dive into this article from Kerry Newhoff, I want to remind you a couple of things. We got a Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. We're on Instagram and Twitter, at Common Good Talk. Plus, wherever it is you get podcasts. It's the end of the show. So maybe like while you're listening to this last segment, if you wouldn't mind subscribing, rating, and reviewing to the podcast, that helps us out. More than I could possibly explain. It means a ton to us, and we're super grateful for all of you who have already done this. Brian and I are both pastors. Many of you are aware of that. Brian is in Downers Grove. I am in Naperville. I almost forgot for a second. What city? (laughs) (laughs) Naperville has been so long since we've actually been in that building together. So sometimes he and I are just kind of naturally thinking through things that have to do with church and church leadership. And uh, this article from Kerry Newhoff, who's been writing a ton these days, his yeah. headline simply reads, 12 things that COVID has taught the analog church about digital church. Can you let us in on a little bit of what he's talking about here? Yeah, he begins by saying COVID has been like a mission trip for the analog church. Uh, mm-hmm. We thought we were going on a short-term trip, but it turned out to be a long-term mission assignment. Uh, and since arriving in this digital Babylon, we have been reaching people we never thought possible it has actually led us to stronger, more relevant, and durable way of doing ministry with analog tools, digital tools, and everything uh, in between. As Nikki Gumbel recently summed up in his podcast, we have tasted something better. Hmm. And so we remember we did some big debate about Kerry Newhoff a couple a month or two ago where Kerry Newhoff is taking a very positive spin, right, on the move to digital and uh, what that has opened up. And it feels like he's doing that here, too. Uh He says, for many, the conversation around technology is relatively new and not always welcome. Consider three postures a leader might take. Some leaders get excited. Some leaders will try something new if they must. uh, And some leaders will refuse to adjust to methods no matter the circumstance. And so uh, he's saying this is kind of a watershed moment for the church. He said, are we in awakening? 
and he says now, he gets to the meat of his article by saying, here are 12 key trends that have emerged so far this year. I believe every leader needs to critically evaluate whether these are true in each local context, and if so, how to respond. So 12 key trends that in this COVID-19, when we've all had to go digital, he says, that have emerged. So do you want to take this first one, or do you want me to, or what do you think? Yeah, let me take number one. All right. He says, attendance is officially dead. By most estimates, the average family attended church between 1.2 to 1.7 times each month in 2019. Reasons for this vary, but it really messed with attendance numbers. Do you have average weekly attendance of 500? That could mean you are reaching as many as 1,000 people, just not all in the same week. Uh, So we had a problem with regular attendance. Then COVID hit. Our building shut down, so attendance crashed to zero, right? Well, in many cases, pastors actually watch digital engagement increase. Then we entered phases of the numbers dilemma. Is it people tuning in, uh, church surfing, reopening surprise, habit change? What Mm -hmm. does attendance even mean anymore? So he goes on to say, rather than counting attendance, church should start counting engagements and outcomes in the people they serve. That is interesting. Number two, people, yes, even older ones, will learn technology if they have a good reason. Hmm. Here's something that shocked us at, a, at my church during the quarantine. We had the highest level of Zoom participation in our boomer groups and older. And although these folks were all too glad to get back to face-to-face fellowship, they've now seen the technology can work and can help them maintain connection with people. More broadly, according to a new Barna study, millennials have actually been more likely to stop engaging with church during COVID compared to boomers and elders. Pastors should consider technology-based solutions for effective ministry for the whole church, not just for the young generations. Your middle and older generations may actually thank you for it. That's good. Number three, kids still need age-appropriate ways to learn and engage. What has been one of the most stressful parts of quarantine for parents? It's trying to juggle daily responsibility. What has been one of the biggest impediments to engaging with church, including watching the weekend streaming service? It's the fact that kids don't like it. And for those churches who've been doing virtual kids ministry, many have been trying to combine several grades together so they can all watch. This results in a watered down or too young programming. Try thinking more strategically about engaging kids online. And he gives some for middle school, high school, segment younger elementary from older, uh, and all sorts of other ways to engage your kids. But keeping kids engaged is an important one. Yeah, we've had a real struggle with that, to be honest. Like, it's trying, real hard trying to actually experience online church with little ones. Maybe, maybe it's true for kids your age too. It's tough. Uh, number, oh, yeah. number four, our buildings and budgets need to change. Leaders may never get a better opportunity to scrutinize every budget line. As you consider reopening and adding back programs, ask, what does this enable us to do? Does this help us accomplish our mission? How can we measure the success of this program? What should this program look like if we want to serve both our physical and digital communities? Every dollar you free up from old, outdated programs is a dollar you can now invest in reaching people in ways that are culturally relevant, measurable, and effective. That's good. Number five, there is hope for the exhausted pastor. This year has probably been the hardest leadership environment we've seen. Here's just some of the heavy, mind-crushing decisions pastors have had to make. Should I close my building? How do I set up streaming? Should I reopen? How can I address racial equality in a way that's helpful? Should we close Mm -hmm. again? What if our government imposes rules on us that violate scripture? At every turn, many leaders approach these decisions with rigorous, careful uh, process that included many voices, yet many pastors resorted to an isolated gut feel decision. Healthy leaders are a prerequisite to a healthy organization. You'll never have 100% of the information to make any decisions. But when you have more of the information you need, your decisions will go faster. 
Um, and so uh, he says the best tool of the COVID season from my perspective has been church specific assessment. So he goes on to say mm-hmm. that there's tools out there that have been developed now that give the pastor some hope. Okay. So it's super clear to me now we're not getting through all 12 of these right. at all. But number six, I'd love to know what you think of this one. Knowing people has never been easier. There's no replacement for face-to-face, but does that mean digital is impersonal? Quite the opposite. Here's what one pastor told me in April. I was a critic of digital ministry until we were forced to switch. I'm completely converted. The quality and depth of the conversation I'm having with people online is incredible. Never have I been able to go so personal so quickly as I am right now. People are willing to share very personal things with me that they would never talk about in person. I, I have no idea if that's been your experience, Brian, but I actually I do see some of what he's getting after there. Yeah, I get it. I get where he's coming from. It has not been my experience, but I do. I have heard that from other people. Interesting. Um, number seven, digital is diverse in every way. You don't need a big budget to leverage digital tools. In fact, congregations from the inner city to suburbs are finding creative ways uh, to reach what reaches people is authenticity. So digital is diverse. Find out what works best for your church. Should I try for one more? Yes. All right. Maybe two more. Yeah. Two more? All right. Yeah. What let's if you just, how about just read the rest of them? All right. I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll just read the headlines for the rest of them. Number yep. eight, digital is both gathered and scattered, and it's neither. Oh, gosh. Ooh. I don't want to read that one. Number nine, uh, people may not be looking for church, but they are looking for answers. Mm. Gosh, these are pretty good. Number 10, mm. the fields are ripe. It's a weird one. Uh, 11, new technology makes discipleship more accessible and measurable. And number 12, waiting for the other shoe to drop is a bad strategy. Mm. I know that we're like all out of time, Brian, but does any one of those in particular kind of stand out to you as you think about your own church? Yeah, a lot of them do. That last one for me personally is a, is a powerful one, waiting for the other shoe to drop. I keep having thoughts of like, well, if and when we have to close again, when that happens, as opposed to like, we're just going to keep plowing through. And right. if something happens, it happens. But that last one's a good reminder. That's a really, really good reminder. And honestly, something that I hope that the show helps bring not only some like comfort, but maybe some clarity and perspective as we're all kind of navigating. I bet you to some degree, a lot of us have been waiting for the other shoe to drop. So as always, we're super grateful for all of you, all of your feedback. If you want to give us a message, you can go to the Facebook page or leave something on the podcast. And uh, we'll be back again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. Dallas Jenkins will be joining us, which is always, always, always good time and for brian from my name is ian simpkins you've been listening to the common good on am 1160 hope for your life